Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Carl Weinberg with us. Uh, we've been getting a briefing through the morning from uh, Dr. Weinberg. Let me ask you a, a 60,000-foot question, which goes back to the nation-by-nation analysis you do at high-frequency economics. Are we in global recession? Uh, good morning, Tom. I don't think we're in a global recession, but we are teetering toward that direction. doesn't mean we're going to get there. But uh, we certainly have a global commodity price decline. We haven't spoken about that in a long time here, but it's still there. Prices are still low. And while they're off their bottoms, they're still so low that the countries that produce commodities, particularly oil, but also copper and nickel and all that other good stuff that goes into making stuff, iron ore, coal, right, it's down. And those countries now import less from the other countries that buy the stuff from them, and that makes them poorer. So U.S. exports are down. Japan's exports are down. Europe's exports are down. Uh, across the board, we're seeing export growth as a drag in the advanced economies, and that's pulling us all slower. I thought one of the uh, most trenchant comments uh, with, with everything going on in the world uh, came from your most recent note where uh, you say, uh, yeah, there's Brexit, but all that was wrong with the world before Brexit remains wrong. Yeah, particularly in England, you know, where uh, they've had a, a balance of payments crisis building for a long time and nobody's done anything about it. They've been so busy deciding whether to stay or leave in Europe. They they forgot that they have a 140 billion pound current account deficit that still has to be financed. And if they leave Europe, the, the incentives are very, very large, at least for companies to slow down their inflow of investment funds into the UK because they don't know what environment they're going to be facing. And some cut firms, as you've already reported here on Bloomberg are thinking about actually leaving the UK and moving to a base within the European Union. So we've got a a stew cooking here in the UK where pre-existing problems just became worse. Well, what's the biggest issue out there? I mean, I won't even list them. There's so many. I'll just ask you, what are you most worried about? I'm worried in the very immediate term about the emerging economies that produce commodities. And we hear this morning about some civil unrest in Venezuela, uh, which is, uh, as we know, extremely troubled by the low oil and prices, uh, by the low oil prices. We've had uh, trouble uh, financially and economically in Nigeria. I think that where we run into trouble is when the the fiscal balances of countries that produce commodities don't add up anymore, (coughs) and then they have to come to the IMF. And I know Tom's talking to Christine Lagarde today, and I'm hoping that'll be one of their topics of conversation. Uh, you're, You're asking Christine for a loan? Yeah, I'm asking her for a loan. I had Carl write out a set of questions for Madame Lagarde so I could get through this in one piece. You've highlighted um, a Bloomberg article on a changed Bundesbank. This is inside baseball, except for Italy, except for Portugal, except for Greece, and on and on and on. Does the Bundesbank still run Frankfurt? The Bundesbank is clearly, uh, you know, a big player in the ECB and in uh, the European. Germany is obviously the key political driving force in Europe right now. They're kind of the the leader that everybody looks to. And there's a story on Bloomberg this morning. I'll admit I haven't studied it or contemplated its implications yet. But the headline is Bundesbank proposes a reform of European crisis response mechanism, and it proposes a bigger role for the European stability mechanism. Did they blink this morning? 
Well, I, I think they might have. I think this is accepting a central form of uh, fiscal power within Europe that the Bundesbank can perhaps accept and digest. It, it indicates a way to move forward. Up to now, their position has always been stop. Don't move forward anymore. We want to block more Europe in fiscal affairs. We want to keep our independence. But here is a first crack that says, well, here's one way in which we might consider uh, moving forward with a centralized fiscal authority within Europe. And I think it's interesting. Like I said, I have to analyze right. it more. But. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. With high-frequency economics and, of course, waxing philosophical at New York University, as he is wont to do in the autumn and the spring. Should we talk to an optimist this morning? We should. I, you know, somebody said, "Do you have notes from Neil Dutta?" I said, "I know what Neil thinks." Yeah. <laughs> Neil uh, Neil Dutta from Renaissance Macro is the head of U.S. economics there. Neil, um, somebody put out this morning a note. Uh, it wasn't you, but uh, I thought it was right up your alley. And they put out the economic surprise index, and it has been significantly higher, rising rather rapidly over the last couple of weeks at a time when everybody is writing off the Fed and saying that the economy is in the doldrums and we must be getting ready for recession. The numbers don't support that. No, they don't. But then again, if the surprise indicator is moving higher, I guess now is the time to get bearish, right, given the mean reverting nature of that indicator. Um, you know, I think those surprise indicators provide very little uh, information other than just to tell us that economists aren't that good at forecasting. You know, my sense is that, you know, just let's review the last six months, right? Um, we've had job growth of about 150,000 uh, on average. We know that's enough to lower the unemployment rate. Core inflation has been firming. Core CPI is running about 2.5% this year. Uh, core PCE, you know, it's up about 1.6, 1.7% year over year. But, you know, given its current uh, pace, rising about three-tenths every six months, it stands to reason that we could be at 2% for core PCE inflation by the end of the year. Let's look at financial conditions. The stock market's at new highs. Financial conditions have actually eased, ironically, since the Brexit vote. And GDP tracking estimates, the second quarter, we're seeing consumer spending run 4.5%. The average at the first half, consumer spending of 3%. And looking forward, I'd expect more broad-based growth uh, this year. Refinancings are picking up uh, because current interest rates are lower than the rates uh, on debt outstanding. Uh, and we're seeing refi activity accelerate. That supports consumer spending. The recovery in financial conditions, that means that people are less afraid. They lower their savings rate. That supports consumer spending. We're seeing wage growth you know, running close to 3% so far this year. That supports consumer spending. And, of course, we're getting easier fiscal policy. Uh, and I'd also add that the narrowing in the corporate bond market, uh, that's going to support business-fixed investment. So we could see more broad-based growth later this year. And, you know, looking at uh, WIRP on Bloomberg, you know, I don't think the Fed will go in September, but uh, they're going to give it more serious consideration uh, than what the markets are anticipating. Well, the markets say not till March of next year, if you're looking at Fed funds futures, if you're looking at option uh, overnight index swaps, you're talking about May of next year. If the conditions of the, la of the last if list six months are any indication of the conditions over the next six months, the Fed will raise rates this year. Um, I, I think that uh, we'll see, you know, we should see one hike. Um, you know, remember, what did the Fed tell us? They want to see uh, stronger job growth, GDP tracking estimates. They want to see some progress on inflation, and they want to see um, basically no event shocks. 
I don't know. I mean, I think you can make a case for September. Um, I think given their risk aversion, they probably won't go yet. Um, but uh, you could you could make a strong case. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, the Fed has a communication uh, problem, uh, clearly. Um, you know, the minutes laid out those right. things I mentioned. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and you could still come up with a scenario where the Fed sees all four of these things happening and still doesn't right. raise rates. So, I mean, that, that, so the communication issue on the part of the Fed is something that we should all uh, be debating. There's a whole other side to Neil Dada that no one knows in Renaissance Macro. And it's not the Fed talk and the parlor talk of what the Fed will do. It's really intense statistical analysis. Neil, I adore your first principal component explain variance chart. Folks, we don't do this on Wednesday or Friday either. All you know is the the orthonormal transformation is different than the linear transformation. Neil, the summary of your spectacular analysis of correlations in the market is now is not 07. Discuss. Well, I mean, well, basically what we were just, we, I mean, it's an observation. And the observation is that cross-asset correlations have gone much higher since the financial crisis uh, ended uh, during this recovery. And, uh, you know, I mean, for our clients, that's creating challenges because, you know, part of the way you make money is by sort of um, exploiting um, gaps in the market. And uh, that's not happening right now. And uh, I think we can debate why that's happening. But, uh, you know, clearly... Um, this creates uh, problems when you have so much cross-asset correlation. So, right. um, you know, if you have a risk-off uh, trade globally, um, well, that sends the dollar higher, and that makes uh, that makes it more difficult okay. for the Fed to normalize. Neil Dada is the economic resident economic optimist at uh, Renaissance Macro. He's the head of U.S. economics research, and he is uh, with us now. We were talking earlier about how um, the numbers keep coming in better, and you mentioned in passing, Neil, that uh, that includes – Inflation, which probably I guess is it, better, is not the uh, the word you want to hear. But uh, I'm wondering two things: one, how fast do you think inflation accelerates, and to what point? And that brings us, you know, obviously to the relationship between the Fed and inflation. How much do they have to do to keep up? I mean, I think. I think the Fed is basically operating at the moment with a de facto sort of two and a half percent inflation target. Um, you know, and I think this is necessary given the fragility of the global economy, right? So one one option for the Fed is basically to let the U.S. inflation numbers pick up to offset disinflation elsewhere in the world, and um, you know that basically implies a lower for longer policy stance. You know, my sense is the Fed raises rates once uh, this year and uh, three times next year. And then, um, you know, as inflation kind of remains sticky, uh, you know, between, you know, let's say close to two and a half percent. I mean, as I mentioned before, it's rising about three tenths um, every six months. So by the end of the year, we could be at core inflation of two percent. Once that once we get towards two and a half, I think that that sort of gets the Fed into more of a normal rate tightening uh, posture. Um, You know, a lot of this talk about tightening financial conditions, and that's done the work of the Fed for it. Advocates of that view, I guess, have to explain why during this 
period of so-called tight financial conditions, U6 unemployment has been falling at about the same rate, um, and inflation has been rising at about the same rate as before. Um, so, you know, this idea that the tightening cycle started with the taper, I think, is belied by the evidence coming out of the labor market and the inflation numbers themselves. Um, I don't think we've actually seen much tightening in policy. Well, certainly if you look at the uh, financial conditions indices, there's no indication that it's particularly uh, that much tighter. But at this point, uh, is it doing anything? Is it weak enough, loose enough that it's actually stimulative? I think so. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that. I mean, financial conditions right now remain conducive to growth. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the corporate bond market's uh, narrowing. That's supportive. Um, you know, remember that a lot of the weakness in business investment started in uh, basically the second half of 2014. And what what did we see during then that period? We saw that's when the dollar started strengthening, commodity prices started falling. That's when the corporate bond market started widening out. That's when we kind of saw very muted gains in the equity market. We've seen a reversal in all of that this year. Uh, and it's sort of sped up more recently, um, particularly since the March FOMC. And, you know, I think that's good for something. Um, whether that sort of gets us to a sustainable, you know, rebound in business investment remains to be seen, but I think it's good enough for a second half bounce. Neil, I want to go back to uh, your beautiful observation on the correlations and the way things are all moving in lockstep in the market. They do this within a foundational fixed income reality. Negative interest rates, near negative interest rates, low nominal, and except with few exceptions, low real interest rates as well. Does that put a big asterisk next to our analysis of market dynamics? I mean, it's completely upended <laughs> some of these sort of, you know, back-of-the-envelope calculations that we've used in the business economic community for the last, you know, several decades, right? I mean, for example... Um, the 10-year yield should be, you know, tracking nominal GDP. Well, I mean, that hasn't worked out forever, right? I mean, so, um, you know, f you know, for, for years. Um, a lot of this, I mean, if you decompose the moves in, in U.S. 10-year yields, a lot of that is just driven by declining term premiums, basically things unrelated to U.S. economic growth and inflation fundamentals. You know, and the net result of that is actually easier financial conditions in the U.S. Um, relative to where we would normally think they should be. And, um, you know, I think given where we are, that's 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 bullish uh, for uh, for the U.S. economic outlook. So in, in, in almost a perverse way, I think um, the sort of uh, yield grab uh, globally, um, particularly amid yeah. more uh, sort of risk fear and risk aversion, um, I think that that's, um, that's almost uh, perversely having some stimulative effects on the U.S. Okay. economy. And we're seeing that with stronger refinancing activity. But is that brilliant? But is that stimulus effect leading are we in or will be we in bubbles as we go to the july and then on to the september meeting i don't think we're, we'll be in one right now but i mean i do think financial stability concerns should be more on people's minds when the unemployment rate is where it is right i mean you know we we hear a lot about um you know secular stagnation and um you know the asset price store a link with that. Um, but, you know, what, what I would say is that uh, it's much more of a concern when the unemployment rate is this low than when it's 10%. And so I think investors should be sorting, sort of studying the risks associated in financial markets with a lower for longer and then more aggressive rate tightening path later on um, scenario, because I think that's ultimately going to be the one that we'll see. Is aggressive really the right word? I mean, in a 2% world uh to, you know, is that aggressive 
With all aggressive relative to expectations, I mean, there are plenty of people in the markets that think the Fed, the, the next move from the Fed is going to be a cut. There are plenty of people in the market that think the Fed is basically done right now. So, I mean, I think it's aggressive relative to the baseline set by the financial markets. Uh, we've seen years now where the Fed has been bending to the financial markets, their market-implied passive rates. I don't know. I mean, I think that the data um, appears to be suggesting that, uh, you know, 2017 could be setting up for a year where maybe the markets spend a little bit up to the Fed's view of the world. Neil Dutt, thank you very much. Um, he's, yeah. uh, of course, Renaissance Macro's uh, head of re- economic research and uh, our, one of the resident optimists who likes to call in yeah. and remind us that we should not feel so badly. Why did this coup fail? They had a reason. They had a way. You studied this at War College at Newport, Rhode Island. Why did this coup fail? I think this uh, coup, Tom, was more beer hall pooch than it was a geostrategic earthquake. In other words, uh, the military had a set of lingering grievances that have been on a slow burn for almost 10 years. They took a shot at it, but they were disorganized. They did not have the really senior players, only one four-star officer involved. I don't think they put it together effectively, and I think the, uh, the people rose up against it and the rest of the military helped crush it. Part of being in Europe is no death penalty. We hear talk of a renewed death penalty in Turkey. How do we adapt and adjust to the realities that Mr. Erdogan faces? How do we support him, given the immediacy of something as emotional and real as a death penalty? Tom, as we look at the aftermath of this, these numbers are staggering. There are 6,000 military judges, prosecutors have been rounded up population-adjusted basis, that's a day in the United States where 25,000 leaders have been arrested. Tension and emotion are running extremely high. I think there is a possibility that the Turkish government will seek the death penalty against the senior leaders here. How you square that against European norms is going to be very difficult. It will set Turkey back on its path to membership in the European Union. Admiral, good morning. It's Guy in London. Was this designed to fail? You know, there's a conspiracy theory running around, Guy, that either uh, President Erdogan or members of his team kind of inspired this and let it bubble in order to uh, bring a crackdown in place. I don't feel that. As I uh, talk to senior Turkish officials and friends, as I look at the news, as I look at the body language on Erdogan himself, uh, I think they felt a real threat from this coup. And I don't think this was a manufactured coup. Admiral, is is Turkey a reliable NATO member? Well, historically, Guy, as you know, they have been. Turkey has been involved in every operation. When I was the Supreme Allied Commander, I counted on Turkey in Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, piracy. They were 100 percent all in with NATO. They host the largest NATO headquarters in Izmir. Yet at this moment, I think the internal distraction that comes out of that is going to make them less reliable. In one sense, the big winner in all this is the Islamic State. 
Um, Admiral, we, we use the, the lira as a litmus paper here. Bowden, if you would bring up the um, the lira chart right now, which shows a shock and awe of Friday. Thanks to uh, Matt Miller and Mark Crumpton for terrific coverage Friday evening. And then we come down into a very normal quiet. There is no quiet, Admiral, at our air base in Turkey. Explain within your experience how the U.S. has an air base, whether it's in Turkey, the Philippines, wherever, and it's controlled as well by Turkish civilians and Turkish military. Did that look odd to you Friday night when we heard of Turkish involvement off of our military base? No, not at all, Tom. Uh, a very common construct in these bases is kind of dual key ownership, if you will. These are always going to be sovereign territories uh, of the host nation state. <clears throat> Typically, the host nation will provide an outer ring of security. The U.S. will provide the inner ring of security. Um, it's normal and logical to see interaction between the two. What was concerning was the fact that those operations were frozen uh, for a period of time. We didn't have effective communication into that base. And of course, this is an extremely sensitive strategic base in every dimension. Admiral, one of the key concerns that Europe will have as it watches events unfold is the migration, the deal that has been struck uh, between Europe uh, and Ankara. Is that deal now at risk, do you think? I think it is not. Um, it is in the interest both of the Turks who are looking for uh, the money they've been promised to make this work, uh, as well, obviously, as in Europe's interest. NATO, the European Union, will continue to work to facilitate that zone guy between Turkey and Greece, where so many of the migrants came last summer. I think uh, because it's in the interest of both parties, I think that deal will go forward. The thing that could upset it would be a, a really violent French Revolution level, off with their heads in the streets kind of response, uh, thousands sent to death penalty. I don't predict that, right. but I think at the dark end of the spectrum, something like that could uh, disrupt the deal. Yeah, Unlikely as, to do so. Admiral, I want to go over two themes as we finish our interview. One theme is what we just saw in Nice and Paris, France, was a moment of silence, which is directly related. This is live pictures, folks, from Nice. It was really something at the top of the hour as the Marseille was, was sung. Admiral, this is a pan-European problem. It's not just about a coup here or a tragedy uh, in Nice. How do institutions in Europe get their hands around what has become a chronic problem? Tom, I'll give you three things to think about in the European context. One is international cooperation, and this is why Brexit is so disturbing. Anything that creates centrifugal force <clears throat> and pulls the union apart reduces that cross-border international cooperation. Second, interagency cooperation between the intelligence agencies, the homeland security forces, the military. And third is private-public cooperation to develop the technologies that can help, the biometrics, the big data, the quantum data, all of that put together, I think, is the future of working these problems, recognizing a few are going to get through right. no matter what we do. Admiral, finally, uh, in our agreement to have you on today, we suggested we would not talk about U.S. domestic politics. You've been a little too visible for the people up at Fletcher School recently. So instead of asking you about your future, I would like to ask you about the new Vogue. You joined the Navy when it was the least popular 
since World War II. You joined the Navy when it wasn't John McCain and George Bush Sr. and others. What is this new vogue of looking at military men to join our senior politicians? Where is this emotion within both parties? Where is it coming from? Uh, Tom, you're, you're nice to uh, raise that as an issue. I appreciate it. I think that uh, there is a sense uh, of the military as a very admired institution, extremely di different than when I entered back in the 1970s. That sort of sense of accomplishment, <laughs> of uh, stability, I think, appeals. And uh, whether or not we see military individuals enter into domestic politics in a serious way remains to be seen. Uh, but I think it, it speaks well for the military, but it speaks well for the nation, the mutual respect between the two. Tom, as I noted uh, just a moment ago, the circus starts tonight. It is pulled into Cleveland. Uh, the annual yeah. quadrennial and is the word. Uh, I, I political want to defend you. It's not a political statement. It's no, not an no. angle Clinton or Trump. It's the same in Philadelphia. They're all week. circuses. Yes, it is all about entertaining <laughs> the uh, masses with uh, bread and circuses because the conventions don't decide anything anymore. I mean, we already know yeah. who the nominee is going to be. We know what the platform is going to be. We know who the vice presidential nominee is going to be. So it is about selling yourself to the American public, and that is Donald Trump's goal over the next four days. Chuck Gabriel will be watching the circus from no doubt a – uh, a good seat. Uh, he is with Capital Alpha Partners, and you're writing about what Donald Trump and company need to do. But you, you, you have an interesting phrase here. They need a Reagan moment. Well, Ronald Reagan was the guy who talked about shining cities on the hill. That is not the kind of language that Donald Trump used. So what, what do you mean by a Reagan moment? <laughs> well, that, that actually came from Reince Priebus on some of the weekend talk shows. And he's the RNC chairman, obviously, and, and I thought what was particularly interesting about his comments was that one of his great blessings that he pointed out was the securable uh, borders of, you know, the lakeside venue they're going to have the convention at at Quicken Loans Arena. But, but really what they, what they hope, first is, of course, they hope for as, as, as minimal disruptions as possible outside, and they certainly hope that Hillary Clinton doesn't you know, does what most candidates do when they're being attacked during the other party's convention. They just kind of lay low. Uh, instead, you know, if she actually goes on the attack, you know, Trump has this reflexive uh, habit of feeling the need to respond. And, you know, that, that doing so it stepped all over his rollout of, of his vice presidential candidate, uh, Mike Pence, for instance. So they're hoping for, again, securable borders. They're hoping for no outside disruptions. They're hoping that, you know, that the candidate doesn't go off script to start tweeting in response to a Hillary Clinton text or comment. But really what they most hope for is that, that Trump can you know, message himself, present himself and his family to the American people in a way that shows that he is human, he's ready to lead. That's exactly what happened with Ronald Reagan and the magic there-you-go-again moment. Uh, back in 1980, he had trailed Jimmy Carter. People wanted change, but they had doubts about Reagan. And then in that second debate, he, he broke through and he won going away. So that's what they're daring to dream for. You know, that's an interesting point. They may be looking for a bounce out of the convention, and usually candidates get one, and Hillary Clinton gets her shot next week, so maybe it's a wash. But the debates are going to be far more important than anything else at, uh, in this election, <laughs> are, they, are they not? No, they, they certainly are. And they, don't, they start in late September. 
So, it, you know, the jury's still out about whether this uh, election is going to be a frame to, uh, in terms of Donald Trump's temperament versus Hillary Clinton's experience, or whether it's going to be her trustworthiness or lack of uh, versus, you know, his uh, representation of change, or whether he even becomes really nasty and becomes sort of oh. cop killer versus racist. So it can go in right. multiple directions by the time we get to those. Chuck, what you do so great is you do the policy wonk thing to a T, but you also have your eye sort of on the Bloomberg politics political world as well. What portion of the public is undecided? <laughs> I mean, versus other go-arounds. I mean, the thing is so bizarre. I think whatever anybody's political persuasion, we can identify that it's so bizarre. How many people have yet to make up their mind? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, Charlie Cook and other great pundits yeah. have, have argued that you know less than 10% are truly going to be movable in the end. So it may be more about turnout. Uh, Obama was able to get just tremendous turnout, outsized turnout, among those non-traditional groups like blacks and Hispanics and younger voters. So the real question for Trump is, you know, if this, particularly if this becomes a law and order election, uh, he might bring out more, um, you know, sort of frightened white voters or angry white, uh, you know, white working class voters that could more than offset what uh, will still be an outsized minority vote. You know, after all, the white vote is still about 70 percent. It's, it's rapidly declining, but it's still 70 percent of the total. So those are the kinds of well cards we're talking about. Not, not a big shift in undecideds but really about a big shift in motivation and turnout, perhaps. Doesn't Hillary Clinton have the huge advantage on turnout? I, I think, well, not necessarily on turnout, but she certainly has a huge advantage on the, in the Electoral College. Uh, and it's not clear yet that the, the public really uh, has such a clamoring for change that it's willing to you know, take a, a flyer on Donald Trump in order to get change. And so that's, that's really the question. But if, but if, you know, if we see more violence... Uh, you know, not not just uh, internationally and on the terrorist front, but you know, with domestic violence, you know, you could you could have some real wild cards here. By, by the way, if, if I could just say, since I know that everybody who listens really has an eye on the stock market, one of the most amazing things is if you look at all the things that have happened in the last couple of weeks heading into this convention in Nice, you know, Turkey, Baton Rouge, the Dallas Sniper, St. Paul. You know, the market has built up an amazing immunity to social unrest, geopolitical worries, even terrorism. And, and that's just an amazing thing, in my view. And that, that's, that's, in, in the old days, you know, you, the market might have wagged the dog if you had the markets really reacting very negatively to these outside mm -hmm. events. It could have infe impacted yeah. the elections. Not today. Okay, Chuck, uh, Chuck, thank you so much. Charles Gabriel, Capital Alpha Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.